Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, evening, and afternoon from wherever you're listening. Welcome to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ujan. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Professor Wendy Doniger about her book, After the War, The Last Books of the Mahabharata, published by Oxford University Press. The book is primarily a translation of the final four books of the Indian epic, the Mahabharata. Wendy Doniger is the Mircea Ilad Distinguished Service Professor Emerita of the History of Religions and a Professor at the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. As one of the, as one of the foremost scholars of Hinduism, comparative religion, and classical Indian thought, Professor Doniger needs no introduction. She has published over 40 books over the course of her intellectual career. Some of her works include Shiva, the Erotic Ascetic, the Origins of Evils in Hindu Mythology, Dream Solution and Other Realities, Splitting the Difference, Gender and Myth in Ancient Greece and India, The Petric Tales of Sex and Masquerade, The Hindus and Alternative History, Against Dharma, Decent in the Ancient Indian Science of Sex and Politics, and Winged Stallion and Wicked Mares, Horses in Indian Myth and History. Professor Doniger is also one of the foremost translators of classical sanctioned works. Some of her translations include Hindu Myths, a source book, the Rig Veda, an anthology, the laws of Manu, and of course, after the war, the last books of the Mahabharata, which is what we are discussing today. Welcome, Professor Doniger. It is an absolute honor to have you today. Thank you for showing interest in my book. (laughs) Absolutely. So um, our first question is always biographical, um, just for the listeners to get a sense. Um, So how did you... How did you develop an interest in studying Indian religion, Hinduism, and the Mahabharata in particular? Those are two different questions. Indian, yeah. So we'll do India in general, then we'll do Mahabharata in particular. Um, I started being interested in India when I was really quite young. My mother gave me um, Passes to India, the Ian Forster novel. And then I read um, uh, a lot of stories, Multiki. Rumor Garden's translation of stories from India. And then I read a tra- what I now know is a very bad translation of the Upanishads um, in the Penguin series, um, but it was the Upanishads. And I became more and more interested in India even before I went to college in high school. I was interested in Latin and Greek. I, I studied Greek. My high school didn't offer Greek officially, they offered Latin. But my, my Latin teacher taught me Greek, and she said, if you like Greek, you'll really like Sanskrit. And that was the language of India. So, so I, when I went to college, I chose my college. I chose Radcliffe because that was the only place that a freshman could study Sanskrit in those days. Um, and so I began Sanskrit when I was 17 as, as my major at Radcliffe. Uh, and I got a MA in, BA in Sanskrit and an MA in Sanskrit and a PhD in Sanskrit and a DPhil. Um, at Oxford, I'm always studying the Sanskrit texts. And the first text that I really uh, worked on were the Puranas. That's really how I, I made my reputation because people at that time 
weren't reading the Puranas. They were reading Kavya, poetry, and so forth. Um, but I loved the Puranas because they were very simple. They were sort of lower class. It was like reading classic comics rather than reading, you know, Jane Eyre or um, or Shakespeare. So it was a sort of it was not really intellectually um, impressive. And my Harvard professor was appalled that I chose to read the Puranas instead of uh, Sanskrit poetry. But I love the Puranas and I love the stories in them. And you can't do the Puranas without going back to the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. They're retelling stories from those two. So I've read the Mahabharata all my life. I've used it in almost every book I ever wrote. I've always, I've always read the Mahabharata. And um, my colleague at Chicago in, many years ago, 40 years ago, was Hans van Boytenen, and he was translating the Mahabharata for the University of Chicago Press. And he translated the first four books, and then he very carefully managed to drink himself to death. And so that was the end of that. And other people have tried to do one or two books in the series since then, but the University of Chicago lost the funding for it as the years went by. We're talking about 40 years now. And so they've stopped publishing the translation of the Mahabharata. They did one or two more volumes. So I thought it's up for grabs, and I've always loved the last books. So I just translated them, and uh, Oxford said, we'll publish them, and, and that's the new book. I think they're, they're not really written about much. People don't talk about them enough. They're really very important, and I think there's something missing there that, that needs to be fixed, and I hope my, my book will make people realize how, how interesting and important those last books are. They're peculiar. They're very short, and the Sanskrit is corrupt in many places. You know, the last books of any big text, I think those are the ones that fall off the camel when you're translating, transporting or something, or the ants eat them first in the library or something. So they're kind of messy books. They're intellectually messy and they're physically books. The manuscripts are all partial. But when you put it together, it makes a very coherent statement and um, it was lots of fun finding out what was in those books. Uh, so yeah, so my so this gets to the next question very seamlessly. Could you tell us a bit about what's so unique about those last books? Because I remember in the introduction you say that both European scholars and Indian scholars have somehow sidestepped carefully around it because of the ethical problems in the book. So what what sort of ethical problems or dilemmas do we see in those last books? It's a good question. Um, you know, the Mahabharata has eighteen books. And it's about a great war. The war is over in book nine. So the second half of it is really about the consequences of the war. And all sorts of things happen. Um, there's a lot of digressions. There's a lot of mourning. There's a lot of um, anger and so forth. And these last books um, are about trying to solve the problem of revenge, really. Because so much of it, you know, in book two, at the very beginning of the 18 books, there's a terrible insult to Draupadi, the wife of the Pandavas. And for the next 10 books, people say, well, because of what they did to Draupadi, we're going to kill them. Because of what they did to Draupadi, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then they do various things. For one thing, they stage, uh, in book 10, <laughs> they stage the night raid. They kill everybody when they're asleep in complete violation of all the rules of war at that time, and in fact, at most times, but in any case, in violation of their own rules of war. And then people say, how could they do that? Who did that? Why did they do that? 
So things keep going wrong more and more and more, and the moral issues become foggier and foggier. You no longer have the good guys and the bad guys. The book is written basically from the standpoint of the Pandavas. The book is written basically from the standpoint of the Pandavas, but they do many things wrong, and many of the heroes are on the other side. So morally, it's a big mess right all through. It's not clear who are the good guys and bad guys, as is, of course, the case in any war. I mean, I, my war was World War II. I was born in 1940, a year before Pearl Harbor. So I was raised thinking that the Germans were the enemies. We were Jewish. And that the Russians were the good guys. They, they basically stopped Hitler. Well, I mean, you just sort of walk away for a minute. In 1946, the Germans are building all our rockets so that we can stop the wicked Russians who have become our enemies just overnight at the end of World War II. So we know what that's like to say the good guys have become the bad guys and the bad guys have become the good guys. And that keeps happening in the Mahabharata. Until by the time you get to the end, when they're trying to figure out who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, it's a big mess. And there are various ways that they sort it out. And you have different conflicting ideas about what happens to you when you die. Sometimes you say you go to heaven and hell. Sometimes, no, you're reborn. Well, you're reborn after you go to heaven and hell. No, you're reborn instead of going to heaven and hell. You're not reborn or you go to heaven right away. So all these different theories are thrashing about. And also, who goes to heaven? The good guys should go to heaven. Yeah, but who are the good guys? We don't even know anymore by the end. So that's why I mean it's morally messy, both because you don't know who are the good guys and because there are several different ideas about how your next incarnation is determined. Do you, in fact, have karma that takes you to another rebirth? Do you have karma that takes you to heaven? Do you go to hell for a while and then to heaven? Do you go to heaven for a while and then to hell? So all these different interesting theories are going back and forth, and there's really no closure. The book doesn't say, now I'll tell you the answer. Some people have said, well, it's really rebirth. And some people have said, well, it's actually heaven and hell. And the Mahabharata says, that's the end of the Mahabharata. And you say, yes, well, and, and. So it leaves a lot of questions unanswered, which I think any serious book of this sort would do. And so people don't know quite how to summarize it. You have to read through the books and see that some say this and some say that. There is a conclusion, but it's a very multi-leveled, self-conflicted confusion. Really a very subtle and interesting book. Right. So I'll just digress one bit and make a historiographical question um, that's not really um, part of the translation, but something you said brings to mind uh, my mind, because in India we were trained in history, so we had to read ancient history and so on and so forth. But in the 19th century or sometime, we had a very maverick idea, historiographical idea about the Mahabharata, which was in currency but somehow lost out. Um, it was very popular in Calcutta for some reason, which was that the Mahabharata was originally a Kaurava tale. It's a it's a tale about the valor of the Kauravas, um, and the Pandavas are the original villains. But for some reason, power structure, the Pandavas won or whatever not, they inverted the tale, and now we have the Mahabharata. <laughs> so do you think there's some... I know some... that very well. I know that very well, and it's, as far as I can tell, it's a desperate attempt 
<laughs> desperate and extremely unsuccessful attempt to make sense of the fact that the heroes are bad. Um, but the whole point of the Mahabharata is that the heroes are bad. That is to say that we're all bad. Um, um, there's a book, um, The Difficulty of, of Dharma, um, a friend of mine wrote, um, that the whole Mahabharata is about how Dharma is impossible, how the, it's not impossible to lead the moral life. The king Yudhishthira, who is the hero of the Mahabharata, is actually the son of Dharma. Um, Dharma becomes incarnate in him. So he's called the Dharma king, both because his father, his divine father is Dharma, and because he spends his whole life trying to do the right thing, which is one way of defining Dharma. And he can't. There are many, many instances in which he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, where there's simply no way out. And in a way, that's the point of the Mahabharata, that even a good man who tries as hard as anyone could to do the good, right thing. Many people don't even try. There are villains who are just out for the money and out for the women and out that. But these are good people in the Mahabharata. They fail. They fail all the time. It's not possible always to do the right thing because Dharma itself is inconsistent. There are rules of what to do and what not to do. For instance, one, there's this um, Sanatana Dharma, there's Dharma Sadharana Dharma, which is supposed to apply to everyone. It's not unlike the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't tell a lie. You should uh, be kind to people who are old and sick. Um, uh, you should not injure anybody. Uh, you should not kill anybody. Those are basic rules. What if you're a warrior? It's your job to kill people. That's what the Bhagavata, Bhagavad Gita is really about. It goes off into all sorts of other areas. But the beginning of the Gita is Arjuna saying, why should I kill people? Isn't killing people bad? And Krishna says, well, yes and no. And that's what the Gita is about. It's an attempt to resolve that basic paradox, which is that killing people is indeed bad, and it is the job of a warrior to kill people. So if Arjuna is going to be a good person, namely a good warrior, he has to kill people, which makes him a bad person. So that, that's, that's what's really the matter with the Pandavas. It's not that the other guys wrote the book. It's that they are the heroes, and the heroes are villains. The heroes do a number of bad things because it's impossible always to be good. That's one of the many lessons of the Mahabharata. And that comes out quite clearly in the last books as well, when they decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And the answer is it's impossible to tell who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And so the other question would be more on the content of the Mahabharata. Uh, what, what was the Mahabharata's readership in ancient India? Like, who were the people reading a text as morally ambiguous as the Mahabharata? It wasn't a readership, it was a hearership. It was an yeah, oral text. Yeah, yeah. It was an oral text. So the theory which I like, it's not not everyone believes in it, but many people do, is that it began when the people called the suttas, who were charioteers and poets, started reciting at night after the battle. So you the charioteer is a very important person. They had uh, very small chariots in those days, and they usually had only two people in them. The warrior stood on one side, 
and held his bow and arrow. The charioteer stood on the other side and held the reins of the horses in one hand and a shield in the other hand in which he tried to protect himself and the warrior. So the charioteer was a bodyguard and famously, Krishna is Arjuna's charioteer in the Bhagavad Gita. God is his bodyguard. But at night, the charioteer would go take care of the horses. The warrior would lie down, have a couple of drinks and relax a bit. And the charioteer would then tell what happened in the battle. You should have seen him today. He killed four people and he did this and so forth. So they were the people who recited the deeds of battle. And then they became the people who recited the broader question of why the battle started, who was in it and so forth. So the, the traditional narrators of the Mahabharata are suttas, sutta uvacha, the sutta said, the sutta said, and so forth, and so forth. And it's quite possible that they were, in fact, oral poets in the Ramayana. The two sons of Rama are also suttas, um, that they were poets um, as well as warriors. Therefore, they were Brahmins and Kshatriyas. They were mixed breed of priests and warriors, Brahmins and Kshatriyas, and therefore they were low caste because you're not supposed to be mixed breed, are they? You're a Brahmin, you're a Kshatriya. So they're low caste people. Karna famously is thinks that he's the son of the Sutta, although he's actually a warrior and so forth. So these guys went around reciting these things and making it up as, it, as they went along. So this is oral poetry being created orally, which is why the poetry is very simple, has lots of interjected um, epithets, your majesty, oh, king of the world, oh, savor of the people, because you could always throw in, oh, king of the world, and oh, savor of the people, if you're trying to think of what you're going to say in the next line. So it's orally improvised poetry, and that's how it began. And after a while, people started memorizing big pieces of it, and people started writing it down. They had writing for a long time. But you weren't supposed to write down sacred texts, but they wrote them down. So you have an oral tradition and a written tradition going on and on. And the stories are told all over India when they finally put all the different manuscripts together in um, the late 19th, early 20th century. They got all sorts of different versions. There's the Madras version, the Calcutta version, and so forth and so forth. Um, and so... Um, the people who heard the stories were the ordinary people. They told it at night around the campfire. Um, they recited it. Then they started acting it out in play. <clears throat> so sorry about that. So then they started acting it out in plays. So it was orally known and it was listened to for centuries and centuries. And it was also written down. Then you get poems based on the Mahabharata. There's a lot of great poems which tell one episode or another you get Kudiyatam performances in South India where they act things out. So it's known in all sorts of ways, um, including finally manuscripts which were kept in libraries and were recopied, none of which is more than a few hundred years old. Manuscripts don't last in India. So there was a tradition of copying it out. It was considered an unlucky book, so you weren't supposed to keep the whole Mahabharata in your house at any time. So you'd copy out part of the Mahabharata and so forth. So it's a mixed oral and written text, which really never did reach a final form. In the 1950s, right after Indian independence, they started publishing a so-called critical edition, cutting together all the manuscripts, but 
a lot of people, including myself, feel that they often made the wrong choice. So that when I translated it, I often drew on passages that were rejected by the critical edition because I thought they were wrong to reject them. They had their reasons for doing it, but I thought they were important additions to the story, and I, and I, I kept them in my translation. So it's a book which is still growing. And there are people today publish six or seven different books you can get in Amazon, retellings of the Mahabharata in English, in Hindi, in Bengali, in Tamil, and so forth. It's a, it's a book that is still changing, is still alive. And the Sanskrit text is just captures one moment in that change. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very well nice way to put it that it's ever changing. But I yeah, this would be a good segue to talk about the translation, but let's um, talk a bit about the critical edition because that has the whole community divided. Like some people think it's the gold standard of how to write a book, or sorry, how to compile a manuscript and how to critically edit a book. And there's the other idea that it's it's leaving important parts out. And of course, the critical edition would leave out so many parts of the Southern recension where there are a lot of fun stories that that, that sort of get. Uh, and then of course, it creates disjunctive moments, especially the the Vastraharan episode is very disjunct in the critical edition because there's one section that says, so yeah, I mean, so are, I would like to know a bit more your take on what went wrong, if anything, with the critical edition. The critical edition um, was put together in, in Indian independence. It was a way of showing that India could do anything that Europe could do. We didn't need the British. We could do it all by ourselves. But it used techniques that had been developed in Europe. Um, it used the techniques that had been developed primarily for the Bible, but also for the editing of Greek manuscripts. It was used, um, it was modeled on European, non-Indian European techniques for texts that were only written. The Bible was not orally transmitted after a very early period, nor was Sophocles or Plato when you had a critical edition of Plato in the Loeb Library at Harvard and so forth. So the technique was not entirely appropriate for the editing of a text that had continued to change orally right up to the 19th, 20th century. So they chose the best manuscripts. They confined themselves to the manuscripts. That's the task they set. And it's a very good edition of manuscripts, not only because they used the general principles that had been developed in Europe over the centuries for editing Greek texts and Hebrew texts, but also because they put in the appendix the things that they left out. So you have a verse, and it says, um, Arjuna um, mounted his horse and rode off into the sky. And then in the footnotes it said, there are three manuscripts that said he mounted his horse, but he fell off and then got on again and then rode off into the sky. And they decided not to put in the falling off part because the best manuscripts didn't have it. But I like the falling off part. Um, I think it's interesting that some people at some point thought that he fell off. And it doesn't matter to me that the best manuscripts thought, no, let's not have them falling off. So the good thing about the critical edition is they tell you what they left out. And you can put it back in when you're reading it with students or when you're doing a translation. You can say, well, there's another possibility here. There's a whole other way of doing it. So the publication is really a marvelous publication. 
because it does have all the manuscripts in it if you look at the critical edition and so forth. But the one they chose for the text is not always the one that I would have chosen for the text or the one that, in fact, I chose for the translation. But I respected it so much that in my translation, I put in italics anything that I did that differed from the critical edition, so you know when I'm when I'm going off from it. Um, so they did a great job on what they did, but it has a limited value. Partly, it's nobody's text. So the Southern edition is, is the way the people in Tamil Nadu thought of it. The Calcutta edition is the way, but no one ever read the Mahabharata or or heard the Mahabharata the way the critical edition has. It's only a scholar's text. So if you want to really see a Mahabharata, you have to go back to the publications of the different recensions. I like the critical edition because I like seeing them all at once. And I, I like being able to pick and choose a good idea. This one had a good idea. So there's a, there's a moment where um, Krishna dies and goes up to heaven. And then one of the texts said, and when he went up to heaven, all these marvelous things happened. Well, that's obviously a later edition for when Krishna was much more of a god than he is in the Mahabharata. But it's interesting to know that people changed the Mahabharata when Krishna became a greater god. So I put that in and I tell us. Some people then said, oh, this is what happened when Krishna went up to heaven and so forth and so on. So it's useful, um, but I hold with the people who say that it is actually nobody's Mahabharata. And if you want to read a Sanskrit Mahabharata, you have to read one of the the Calcutta recension or the Southern recension or the Bombay recension, one of the three great recensions. Yeah. And, um, and so one thing, um, and this is of course a very broad question, but it's, it's a bit more about the translation. Um, what are generally some of the challenges you face translating from Sanskrit to English in generally, um, but also some, a text like the Mahabharata, which has so many recensions going on and, yeah, Ah. Well, translating in general, the problem is that every Sanskrit word has around six or seven very often very different meanings. And when you read the text in Sanskrit, they're all there in your head. So the verb hun, for instance, can mean to strike or to kill. They're very different. I let try to go, try to go to court sometime in Chicago and say, well, I you may say I killed him. I think I actually only struck him, you know? Uh, give us a break here. So when you have that someone was a hatha, was killed or struck, you have to look around and, and see what the context is. So even when you're translating a simple sentence, you have to see what the, what the whole world of that sentence is before you choose which word to use. Um, and words have overtones. So, for instance, the word um, for a bird is, one of the words for a bird is dvija, twice born, because the bird is born from an egg, and then it's born out of the egg. But of course, twice born also means a Brahmin, because he's born from his mother, and then he's reborn in initiation. So there are a lot of verses in which the word bird actually also has an overtone of Brahman to it, if you want to read it that way. You, can't, you just can't do that in English. So translating from Sanskrit in any case, you have to make choices that close down the multiple options that the Sanskrit reader has when he reads a text, which are so rich, you just narrow it down. The Mahabharata had also other problems, partly because there are mistakes in it. 
Um, there are just some verses. The, the Mahabharata admits that it has mistakes in it because one of the recensions tells the story of how when Vyasa wanted to have someone write it down, he called Ganesha and he said, I'm going to dictate it to you. And so uh, Ganesha said, okay, but um, uh, he said, uh, but um, I, I'll, you mustn't go ahead of me. So Vyasa said, don't write down anything you don't understand. So Ganesha was going ahead of him. So quickly, Vyasa threw in a knot, a grunt, a tangle, so that Ganesha couldn't keep up with the dictation because it was hard to untangle the knot, and he finally did that. So that's the way the Mahabharata tells you that there are knots in it. There are things that are difficult to translate. The the text itself acknowledges that. There are mistakes. There are verses left out. There are corruptions. There are places where you just can't understand anymore what the words mean after two, three thousand years. You know, things change. Um, So there are times when it's difficult to translate. In addition, um, I had a trouble, and I wrote about this in my preface, with the words that the poet, I believe, threw in when he was ad-libbing his oral poetry. Arjuna, the sacker of cities, the ambidextrous archer, and so forth, do you really need all that every time you refer to Arjuna? So I left it out. But then when you read it, it just said Arjuna went down to the city, and that wasn't good either. It had a rhythm that you like. So sometimes I put in Arjuna, the ambidextrous archer, and so forth. Then there were words like Mahatma, noble souls, virtuous, that everybody had. Every single archer is virtuous. Every woman is beautiful and all that shit. And you get tired of it. So I left out some of those, but I put in the ambidextrous archer because only Arjuna is called that. So you make arbitrary decisions as a translator as the best way to make the reader get the idea of the original without boring her or misleading her or leaving out too much of the text. So there are compromises, which sometimes if a word has two meanings, I put them both in. If a word means both cruel and selfish, and I can't decide whether I should call him cruel or selfish, sometimes I say he was cruel and selfish. Um, There are different ways you um, compensate for the inadequacy of English as a language to translate Sanskrit, and that's why every translator is different. Every translation is different, and this is mine, and someone will come along and do a lot of it better, and maybe some of it worse. You just make different choices. Right. And then I also noticed that um, you had a section on keeping some words untranslatable in Sanskrit. So broadly, what do you think is the place of untranslatables in a translation? I think you're allowed, I mean, the person who picks up a translation of the Mahabharata is not someone who simply watches television all day. It's going to be someone who reads and who's willing to do some work. But the question is, how much work can you expect your reader to do? So Mm -hmm. I limited myself to, I think, five words. Uh, besides the four, uh, nine if you count the four varnas, I think they should learn Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaisha, and Shudra. That's so important. I thought they should learn Dharma, because you can't translate Dharma. I thought they should learn the word tapas, which is often translated as asceticism, but actually it's not, it's heat. Um, so I thought that I could ask the reader to learn the names of the four classes 
and four or five other words which are untranslatable, and I translated everything else. Um, and I thought that was a fair compromise. Uh, I kept the names in. I didn't put in diacritical marks. I think an English-speaking reader is not going to be the difference is shiva with the s with the slash over it. I spelled it s h the way you'd pronounce it. I think diacriticals put off a lot of, of ordinary readers and are not necessary. So I, I I made those compromises. I made it as easy as I could for the reader, but at the same time I asked the reader to do a little bit of work to learn. I also asked them in in this part of the Mahabharata. The word kala is very important, and I, I made them learn that. Time, fate, death, it means all three, and it's hard to choose every time it comes up whether it means time or fate or death. Um, so I, I think you can ask some things of the reader, but not too much. Sanskrit puts everything in the passive, and English puts everything in the active. I just don't like translations from Sanskrit that keep everything in the passive. You, if the Sanskrit says he was beaten with a stick, you, uh, John was beaten by Sam. In English, you say Sam beat John. That's it. just so. I changed all the passive to active. So they're just changes you make as 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 a translator. Decisions you make about what you can and cannot expect of your reader. And I put in a lot of footnotes. I said what this actually means is this. You remember we heard this before. You're going to hear some of this again. Um, I, I thought of teaching a class, really, and what I would say to my students, watch out for this, it's going to come back again. Or, you remember he said the same thing? Oh, yeah, and so forth. Um, so I, I helped the reader out in footnotes rather than putting everything into the text. Yeah, and that's what makes it more readable because the Sanskrit would use the Triti again and again and again for some reason. Nobody knows really why. But the, yeah, but so you would say that it's all, so you would say it's fine to, do the passive to active to yes. maintain the readability. Yep. The, 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 the text has got to be read in English. And I think English should never use the passive. Uh, uh, I, 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 I try never to use it at all. And when my students use it, it's because you're, you're, you're not telling enough. You say, for instance, women were badly treated in the 19th century in England. So who treated women badly? All men, most men, their husbands. If you say, let's have an active sentence, you realize you've got to do a little more work. What are you actually saying? And so the passive is a way of hiding behind um, blaming people for what they do. And I think you should make people stand up and be counted. So if this was said, who said it? It was known. Who knew it? So I, I don't let my students use the passive either, by the way. <laughs> But this, but this is sort of, I've I've seen this a problem in South Asian texts. Right, like so many times, authorship is not ascribed. For example, so you'd have to say it's written in X Purana, or would you say that the Purana said the it Purana and make the, Pur- the Purana says? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, a quickly a thread on what you said on the Kala, because I had that on my notes. Um, is your question on theodicy, which of course goes back to your uh, earlier works on Origins of Evils, which by the way is still one of my favorite works that you have written. It's just, I don't know, I somehow never, uh, I mean, I read it a long time back, but I keep going back to it. (laughs) Um, So what is the Mahabharata's explanation for the massive destruction of everything? It has too many explanations. 
And Freud would say that's overdetermined. Mm-hmm. In other words, it can't explain it. Um, it blames individual humans for certain things. If Duryodhana had not stripped Draupadi in the in the assembly room in book two, the might not have happened, might not have happened, might not have happened. There are human beings that do things. Krishna himself um, could have stopped the war at a number of different places and didn't. So there are individual humans who are blamed for certain things. Then you get curses upon curses. So near the end of the Mahabharata, in the books that I translated, one of the reasons that so many people die who didn't die in the war is that the Pandavas themselves get drunk and start accusing one another of the mistakes they made. You, you struck a man when he was standing on the ground. You, you struck a man when he was harnessing his horse to his chariot. You killed people when they were asleep. So the good guys, the surviving heroes, yell at one another, get drunk, and accuse one another of false deeds, and they kill one another. They kill one another with clubs that are the result of a club that shattered when 18 years earlier, a bunch of bad boys teased a group of sages and they said, this club is going to destroy, is destroy you all. But the reason the sages made that curse was that 18 years earlier, when Gandhari saw how Krishna had killed so many of her sons, she said, in 36 years, you people are going to kill yourselves in a drunken brawl. So you have this curse and that curse and that curse. And then finally, the Mahabharata says, well, you know, once upon a time, the earth was overburdened either with evil people in one version or with good people in another version. There's just too many people, overpopulation. And we know about this. It's a real problem. And so the gods and the the earth, who's uh, who's a woman, who's a female, complains. She says, I'm sinking beneath the cosmic waters. There are so many people on me. So the gods say, okay, we're going to send down Krishna and some other guys, and there's going to be a battle, and they'll kill off most of the people, and then it won't be so bad for you. And the earth says, thank you very much. And at the end of the Mahabharata, they say, well, that's what happened. These people, they were really gods incarnate, who became incarnate. So it's just kind of a band-aid tacked on at the end. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's a stupid, stupid explanation. What it means the gods did it, and they did the right thing in doing it. So they, there's one level of explanation that simply removes human culpability, but within the book, humans are culpable all the time. If you hadn't done this, says Draupadi, that would have happened. If I hadn't made this mistake, said Yudhishthira, this wouldn't have happened. So you have a million little human mistakes that really make the war happen. And at the end, they said, actually, the gods wanted it all to happen. It was all fated. It all happened to happen. It all, and now you're all going to go to heaven and live happily ever after. The gods have done a great favor for you. Now you're not going to live on earth anymore. And it, it doesn't work. It's paper thin. It's just painted on very badly at the end and at the beginning, because, you know, you put them in at both ends. But throughout the book, you are constantly reminded that people are making moral errors, which result in death of all kinds of people. And that is really what the book seems to be about. People do the wrong thing and people die. When you do the wrong thing, death happens.
So you have the, the, the many, many human dilemmas and then finally all wiped out by an unconvincing, overarching divine plan. Really, the gods wanted the war to happen. And in the final books that I translated, Krishna has a number of three or four opportunities to stop the slaughter. He is actually present when they get drunk and start accusing each other and killing each other. And at first, it says he he just leaned back. He leaned on one of the clubs and he didn't participate because as a god, he knew that this had to happen. Then someone kills one of his sons and he loses his temper and starts killing people and he kills more people than anybody else. So you have both Krishnas there. You have Krishna, the God who stands back from it, and Krishna, the incarnate human being who has a wife and sons that he loves. And when he sees his sons killed, he does what most human beings do when they see their sons killed. He kills the people that killed his sons. So even in that one chapter, you have on the one hand the theological explanation, which is then thrown out the window, and Krishna's just a guy like you and me, loses his temper and does the wrong thing. So it's a very wonderful book where it tries to make sense on every level possible, number philosophically, theologically, humanly, um, narratively. It's just amazing. So quickly then, what um, would you say? So the, the, the final, the book of clubs, the Moshal Parva, the final book, why no, is it there? Book 16. Sorry, the, 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 the book 16, sorry. The, one of yeah, the yeah, one of the final books. So why is it there? Um, because Krishna is sort of deified in the later books. Um, and for the authors of the Mahabharata, and of course, historically, Krishna is also sort of becoming a more powerful deity. Um, and then his death is sort of expatiated at some length in the book. Um, and so why would it, I mean, I know you said that anybody who knew Sanskrit could alter the Mahabharata a bit there and a bit here, as long as they had some understanding of what else is going on. But it, it looks to me a very odd addition. I mean, that could have just not been there or said that Krishna lived happily ever after and got no Yep. And the way Krishna dies is so weird. On the one hand, Krishna decides it's time to die. So does his brother Balarama. Balarama simply meditates and his soul leaves his body in the form of the cobra Shesha, because Balarama is actually an incarnation of Shesha. And the, the cobra goes back into the water and to the ocean and is greeted by all the cobras in the ocean. And the body of Balarama is there. It's later found and buried, uh, uh, that is cremated. So Krishna decides he's going to die because he knows it's the right time. So he lies down, but he doesn't die. A hunter comes up and shoots him in the foot, mistaking him for a wild animal. And the hunter kills him that way. And the hunter thinks he's an animal. He comes up to get his deer. When he comes up there, he sees that it's a man wearing golden robes and who has four arms, by the way. At that point, Krishna has been two-armed all through this part of the Mahabharata. And there he is. He's turned into Krishna the god. He's actually turned into Vishnu, the goddess, very complicated. And so he's very upset. And so Krishna forgives him and he goes up to heaven. So on the one hand, you have the Indo-European motif of the hero who has one vulnerable spot. We call it the Achilles heel because Achilles was 
only had his heel. As Siegfried in the Wagnerian epic, there's a he's made invulnerable, but there was a leaf that fell down on his shoulder when he got the magic goo that they put all over him. And so there's a spot you can kill him in the shoulder. Krishna was given a magic pious, a kind of a a bread pudding, an egg pudding, um, a, a, a sort of a rice pudding. And it's smeared all over his body to make him um, uh, um, invulnerable. But he doesn't want to put it on the bottom of his feet because it's sort of ticklish. And so... So there's that story, which is an Indo-European story that predates the Mahabharata by thousands of years. And it's stuck in there. Really, all you needed was for Krishna to meditate just like Balaram and leave his body. But no, you have a hunter, and the hunter is named old age. The hunter's name is Jada, with a long A, a feminine noun. There is no hunter in all of Indian literature that has the name of a feminine noun. He's a man. Why does he have a... So it's all screwy. It's too many things going on when Krishna, the, the end of the Mahabharata, it's like they're trying to get everything into it at once. It's a crazy passage. It's what Freud would call overdetermined. It happens because he meditates. It happens because he's vulnerable and the hunter. It happens because it's the end of the Mahabharata and he has to go to heaven. Um, so it's, it's a mess in a way that leaves open all these possibilities. It doesn't seal it down and throw out all the ideas but one. It, it puts you in on all the possibilities. It's rich that way. It's just, it's, I think it's amazing. I hope it's just wonderful. Yeah. I, I think it's already time and I don't want to keep you for too long. So last two questions really. One, and I think that would be fitting. Okay, let's do the last question first, which is what's your next project? What are you thinking on working on um, next? Well, um, um, as I said, I, I, I just published simultaneously, really a month ago, a book called An American Girl in India, Letters from 1963 and 64. Um, I did it simultaneously with the Mahabharata, so it comes next in a way. I found when I was uh, retiring, um, I found in my office a box of letters I'd written home to my parents. I picked up a piece of paper. It said, Calcutta, December 10th, 1963, Dear Mommy and Daddy. <laughs> so these were the letters I typed out when I was a little girl, 22 years old, in India, 1963. And my mother saved them. And so I put them together and I wrote prefaces to the letters where I was and so forth. It's mostly about Calcutta and Shanti Niketan. You were in Calcutta? I was in Calcutta in oh. that's, that's where I went when I went to India. My, my first trip to India, I lived in India that year. And I was in Calcutta and then I was in Shantiniketan. I knew lots of people. I lived in Calcutta and I knew, I knew Jamini Roy, the painter, and all sorts of wonderful people. And I met Ali Akbar Khan and I took Sharod lessons from Ali Akbar Khan. So that's all in the letters. I met Ali Akbar Khan. I said, I met Jamini Roy and I bought a painting from him. Um, so um, they're very childish in some ways, but they're interesting. And I wrote notes explaining where I was and what I was doing. So that's in a way the other book, the other book from this year that they all came together this year. I've been working on them for a long time. And right now, because I have to be doing something, I'm translating the stories that are scattered through books 12 and 13 and 14 that have nothing to do with the main story folk tales and animal fables and moral lessons that are told to people 
that have nothing to do with the Pandavas and the story. And they're miscellaneous stories, but I think there's a pattern in them, and I want to find out what it is. So I'm translating all those stories. There's a story I just did yesterday about a dog who lived with the sage, and one day a leopard came, and the leopard's going to eat the dog. So the dog said, please change me into a leopard. So he changed him into a leopard. But then one day a lion came to eat the leopard. He said, please change me into a lion, and so forth. And he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, he decides he's going to eat the sage, and the sage turns him back into a dog. So that's, that's, that's the So anyways, there's a point to that story, believe it or not. And... Well, that's, I'm, I'm translating those stories for a book about miscellaneous stories in the Mahabharata. Um, brilliant. Yeah, well, tables and things like that. Yeah. Well, let's end with then the final question, which you can, um, which will end with the final book of the Mahabharata now and with as the final question, which is only fitting. So one of two, whichever you want to answer, which is one is, what's the deal with Yudhishthira's dog? and what does that tell us about the moral ambiguity in the Mahabharata which is also there in your book so anybody who wants to read it Um, Uh and finally why is Duryodhana in heaven Uh, let me answer the dog question partly because it's easier and because it's more fun so the story is that Yudhishthira alone survives as they're walking up to heaven one by one Draupadi and his four brothers fall by the wayside each time because one had committed some very minor fault. One of the brothers was a little bit vain. The other one ate too much. These are just tiny, tiny little things that justify the fact that they're unable to walk into heaven. But Yudhishthira has never done that. So he walks on, he's about to go to heaven, and as he's walking along, a dog follows him. In fact, he's been following all of them from the start, once they started walking to heaven. He was the seventh in line. Yudhishthira, the four brothers, Draupadi is the sixth, and the dog is the seventh. Finally, they're all gone. There's just Yudhishthira and the dog. And Indra says, come on, come to heaven. And Yudhishthira says, okay, I want to take my dog with me. And Indra says it's against the rules to bring a dog into heaven. It's unclean in terms of Hinduism because dogs eat offal and and meat and, and feces, garbage, and they would pollute the sacrificial offerings. So Indra says you can't bring the dog to heaven. That's a rule of Hindu cleanliness, uh, Hindu orthopraxy, doing the right thing. You can't bring a dog to heaven. They're unclean. You couldn't bring a dog into a temple is what I think it really means in a way. So Yudhishthira says, I'm sorry, this dog is my bhakta. He's He's been devoted to me. And it doesn't mean what it comes to mean later on where you're Krishna bhakta and Hare Krishna and all that sort of thing. It simply means... He's my devotee. He stayed with me all this time. I'm not going to throw him out. So you have two different moral systems here. One is the old system of purity, and the other is a new kind of moral system, which you're going to have in real bhakti, where purity doesn't matter, where Krishna commits adultery, where all things happen which are against the rules of Hinduism but are okay because of this passionate love that you have. So. It's a moral impasse. The Mahabharata cannot resolve it. And so it says, actually, the dog says, hey, I'm not a dog. I'm actually Dharma incarnate. I'm your father, Dharma. And everybody embraces and Yudhishthira goes to heaven. So the dog doesn't go to heaven, but nor is the dog kept out of heaven. There is no dog. 
So this is the way that the text says there's a problem here we are not yet ready to solve. Later on, you get the worship of Shiva. Shiva has the dog with him. And in fact, Shiva is really a Chandala. He's a Dalit in some ways. And he goes into the temple. So that's a later form of Hinduism that the Mahabharata is not ready for, but you see they're working on it. Someone has said, never mind that a dog is unclean. If he's your bhakta, he should go in. And the Mahabharata says, I can't deal with it. Let's just get out of this story. Let's do something else. The dog doesn't exist. There was no dog. So it's a wonderful moment to see the Mahabharata failing to deal with a new form of moral religion, but not being unwilling to leave it out. So it's there. Right. So, but up until then, would you say that it's still working as sort of an ideological apparatus for Brahmanism or reinforcing Brahminical values? It is, but it's also challenging them. By challenging Dharma, you're challenging the religious ideology. Little boys and girls are told to obey Dharma. And this book says it's impossible, actually. You can't obey Dharma. So it's a real antinomian book in a way. I mean, it tells you a great length, the part I'm translating now for this new series, how to be a king, you have to do this, you have to do that. All along the way, it tells you what Dharma is and why it's important to do it. But all along the way, it also says, actually, you can't do it. So it has the system and the critique of the system built in together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a um, nice place to call it. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we never got to the Duryodhana question, but maybe for another time. Uh, but um, I'm going to just stop. Re- I, I'm going to just stop recording, but we'll still be on the call for me to download. So that's fine. So I'll just do this. So thank you, Professor Doniger, for joining us today. That was a very interesting discussion, and I'm so glad that we could have you here today uh, with us. You asked wonderful questions, and it was. I always love talking about a book I've written. <laughs>